This is Daniel Gallardo, and you're listening to the Tenkara Cast, a podcast about the simple Japanese method of fly fishing, Tenkara. In the Tenkara Cast, we'll be sharing information on techniques, history, philosophy, and Tenkara stories from anglers all over the world. This podcast is brought to you by Tenkara Yosei, introducing Tenkara outside of Japan since 2009. It's only possible we create content such as this podcast and videos because of your support. So we thank you so very much for purchasing Tenkara Yosei rods, lines, and flies. I hope you enjoy learning more about the simple method of fly fishing. Hello, Tenkara anglers. Thanks for joining us on the Tenkara cast.、Uh, today we're going to be talking about Japan. Uh, Tenkara, as you know, comes from Japan, and、uh, we've been trying to introduce the, the concept of Tenkara over here, sharing the Tenkara stories. So, I figured I'll do an、uh, episode about Japan, traveling to Japan, my experiences fishing in the country. We'll also be covering the, the trout of Japan, which are really absolutely fascinating. We'll try to give you some cultural tips,、uh, information on how to get around, as well as a,、uh, a little pronunciation guide for those of you who always wonder how to pronounce certain words in Japanese. Hopefully, this episode is going to be interesting to anyone who is going to be visiting Japan anytime soon, either for travel, just for travel's sake, or for business, or anything like that. Bit about my experiences with、uh, traveling to Japan.、Um, I have been visiting Japan every year since 2008. My wife Margaret has some relatives in a couple of different parts of the country, in Osaka as well as Yamagata, a little further north. And back in 2007, we started talking about visiting some of her relatives. I've always wanted to travel to Japan. And of course, when she started bringing up let's go travel, One of the first things that came to mind was like, yes, I'd really like to go there and I'd love to do some fly fishing. <laughs> so I told her, you can spend all your time with your grandparents, but I really want to do some fly fishing. And I started researching opportunities to fly fish in Japan. And that's when I came across Tenkara. So in 2008, it was around August and September. Margaret and I、uh, filled up our backpacks and we backpacked around Japan for a little over two weeks.、Uh, we stopped to visit her relatives, but we also got to travel to a lot of different、uh, cities. We visited some friends in Tokyo and that kind of thing. So that was my very first experience traveling to Japan、uh, with her. Ever since, I've gone back every year, and my trips usually range from anywhere from two weeks、uh, up to two months.、Uh, my longest trip so far was in 2011、uh, when I spent two months in the small mountain village of Mazegawa in the Gifu Prefecture in Japan. And that was the year after I spent some time fishing with Dr. Ishigaki, and I knew I had to go back there because I had met. Some other Tenkara anglers, and I really wanted to immerse myself. I、uh, wanted to learn everything I could about this method of fishing. So I contacted one of the people that I met,、uh, Mr. Rocky Osaki, and I asked him, Can you help me figure out a place to stay?、Uh, do you have any suggestions for you know, where I could go if I want to spend a little bit more time in Japan than most people? Uh, so he very kindly、uh, opened his home, him and his wife Ikumi opened his home to me, their home to me, 
And I stayed with them for two months. I uh, spent time at the Mazigawa Fishing Center, helping out where I could. Uh, but on a regular basis, just fishing on the Mazi River. Uh, in any case, so that was my longest trip back in 2011. Um, and... 2012, 13, 14, I've gone back for two to three weeks uh, on average. And then I'm planning my next year's trip, which I'm hoping to spend a little over a month this time, capturing more photography and videos uh, with different people in Japan. So that's my experience right there. And I think I've learned a thing or two in these travels uh, that that I hope to share with you. So Japan is a very interesting country. First of all, I should get something out of the way. I don't really recommend visiting Japan solely for the purpose of fishing. Uh, I think fishing should be a side activity for most people visiting Japan. Um, I might be a little bit of an exception because this is uh, what I love to do. I love sharing their story. But for the most part, if you are wanting to go to Japan and catch some of their native trout, and I'll talk about the trout in this episode as well, um, think of it as a cultural and a leisurely experience where you're going to enjoy some of the best food in the planet, um, absolutely stunning scenery, and you're going to get to learn a lot and see how a very different culture uh, exists and how things are done differently there. So again, fishing in Japan, I'll talk a little bit more about the fishing conditions there. I don't recommend booking your trip today just to fish. However, I do encourage anybody who is interested to go there to Japan by all means. It's been really interesting for me to notice too that uh, ever since I started introducing Tenkara here, uh, several people have gone to Japan now to learn from some of my teachers and meet with people there. Uh, like Adam Tran, for example, from Tenkara-Fisher.com. He runs a, a forum and he planned his trip. He actually made a really nice record on his forum about his tra- uh, travel planning and how he went about traveling to Japan uh, to fish and experience the culture and meet up with other Tenkara anglers. So it's been really fascinating to watch uh, more and more people going there, getting to fish those waters and getting to experience Japan and Tenkara in Japan, of course. So let's start by talking about the trout of Japan. A lot of people are always surprised when I mention that Japan does have their own native trout. And as trout anglers, a lot of us really love seeing the native trout of different parts of the country or the world. You know, every trout has their own beautiful markings. There's a lot of variation between different kinds of trout. Uh, When you catch a brown trout, it's got all this you know, usually bigger spots, and then you have the rainbows, which are shinier and like little spots, and the cutthroat have this beautiful little mark on their cut on their on their throats. Uh, and then within each one of those, there's always variations as well. Like for example, the rainbow trout, you might have the red band McLeod trout, for example, uh, and so forth. And Japan has their own trout, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to fly fish in Japan when I first started considering traveling there. Um, I love, I think one of the things that I love about fly fishing is there's something there underneath the water and you cast a fly and all of a sudden you're able to see it. You pull it back to you and you bring it to hand or your, to your net 
and you're able to see this beautiful thing that otherwise would have been hidden uh, from view forever. Um, so catching trout, bringing them to hand, and kind of just admiring the, the markings on the trout is fascinating to me. Now, Japan has three major uh, mountain stream fish that, uh, th- that we're usually catching with Tenkara. Two of them are trout, and one of them is a char. I mean, it's a very similar-looking fish with some technical differences that I won't get into in this episode. But the two major trout of Japan are the, yam- the yamame and the amago. Now, yamame is a, it's an interesting word because yama means mountain. And then me, and like in the way that it's written in this word, means lady. So essentially, lady of the mountains. And then you have the amago. And the name amago comes from the roots in Japanese, ame, which means rain. And then go, which is, comes from ko, actually, uh, which means child. So the amago is the rain child. And somebody, I think it was, uh, yeah, I think it was uh, Mr. Eddie Yamakawa, told me once that uh, the amago maybe are one of those fish that are well known to, when it starts raining, they start getting a little bit more active and biting the fly. Uh, that's, yeah, I'm not sure if that's exactly the case, but uh, that that's the origin of the name. So you have the yamame, which is lady of the mountains, and then you have the amago, uh, the child, the rain child. Those two fish are very, very similar. Uh, they're a little bit more alike the like the rainbow trout that a lot of you are going to be familiar with. A lot of the amago and the yamame tend to retain their par marks, those big oval, uh, usually dark marks on the side of the bodies, um, longer than the rainbows I've noticed. Um, not always, but you catch some, you know, the par marks are... Uh, they're also known as the like the juvenile kind of marking because a lot of fish they'll start losing those marks as they get older and bigger. Now, the in my experience so far, it seems like the amago and the yamame they tend to retain those big par marks a little bit longer, which is uh, something really unique. The two of them, they had, there's a lot of variation like in different streams. You're gonna find you know different kinds of amago with some different characteristics. But the Amago and the Yamame are very similar. Uh, they look alike quite a bit. Now, the main difference, uh, the main way of knowing whether you caught an Amago or a Yamame is going to be the red spots that are going to be on the Amago body. So if you look at them, and one of them has like bright red spots, and you can't miss them for the most part, uh, that's the Amago. And then the Yamame doesn't have those. So we have some pictures on our website, our last Tenkara magazine. We also had some uh, beautiful pictures of the uh, the Amago and the Yamame. Now, the other type of fish that we catch in trout streams in Japan, uh, it's technically a char, uh, but it looks really similar, uh, is the Iwana. The Iwana, uh, the name comes from rock fish, uh, you know, Something about them kind of hiding under rocks, which all the trout do, but uh, for some reason they decided to name Iwana rockfish. Another possible reason that I've heard Iwana being called rockfish is that if you put them on the on top of a rock, like in dry land, and I don't recommend this, uh, but if you put them on, on dry rocks, their fins are going to be sticking out to the side, 
and they can support themselves upright. And some people even say they can walk on rocks. So the iguana is a little bit more similar to what a lot of you know as the brook trout. Uh, the brook trout is also a char, and they have some similar similar characteristics. You know, like the the little spots, a lot of times like white spots on the body, and some of them will also have vermiculations on top of the body on the very uh, on the back. So that's an easy way to tell that it's a uh, iguana as well. So those are the three main fish that we catch in mountain streams in Japan. know the fish that you're going to be catching in Japan, let's talk a little bit about traveling in the country. Uh, we can cover the times of the year to go, when you're going to be able to fish, as well as certain of the uh, regions, uh, as well as a couple of tips on getting around and that kind of thing. My favorite time of year to go in Japan, uh, usually there's two times of years that I like that I like to go to Japan. I like to go there approximately mid-April to early May or uh, mid to late August. So those are times when the weather is going to be very pleasant. If you go there in the middle of the summer, you know, June, July, early August, it can be scalding hot. And Japan is a very humid country. So in my experience, it's not the most pleasant uh, time of year to be there, even though you're going to be high up in mountain streams. Uh, eventually when you when you go visit so I do try to time my trips to uh, mid-April to early May uh, or mid to late August uh, until through early September now one of the restrictions that we have in Japan is going to be the fishing season so Japan is really interesting too and I'll talk a little bit more about that later every river is managed by what they call a co-op. Essentially, the local residents, uh, they, they have certain people that are in charge of managing the river or the river system, depending on where you are. And some of them are going to be closing at different times. But it, as a rule of thumb, you're looking at the times that you're going to be able to fish is going to be between March 1st and September 30th at the latest. So that's really, the as a general rule, the fishing season in Japan. There are very, very few exceptions that go uh, early, that open earlier uh, or stay open late. Um, for the most part, March 1st through September 30th is when you can fish. Um, early March actually is also very good. Uh, it might be a little bit sluggish, but another time of year that I like to go there too is, uh, is March. Very pleasant time of year to fish. When it comes to destinations, uh, you know, Japan is not a huge country. You can visit a lot of different areas, but uh, we all have limited amount of time. Just to kind of give you a sense of perspective, I've, I've heard of Japan, the size of Japan being compared to the size of California. So not a whole lot bigger if you're talking about the main island anyways. And then you have, of course, Hokkaido, which is a very huge island up north, a very famous fishing area but primarily for salmon when we're talking about tenkara in particular we're talking mostly about fishing in the main part of japan and that's going to be like the main island in japan my favorite regions i mean there's a lot of different areas essentially all of japan 70 percent of japan is covered in mountains 
And one of the things that I realized really early on is that you can fish almost anywhere there because there's so many mountains and mountain streams. The areas that I have most experience fishing uh, are going to be near Yamagata, which is north of Tokyo. Uh, And from there, you have some hills and mountains uh, really close by. And the Japanese Alps, which is uh, this area between Tokyo and Osaka. And you'll see in a map, it's a big mountain range. Uh, The Japanese Alps is where I spend most of my time. Uh, That includes like Gifu Prefecture uh, and uh, Nakano uh, Prefecture, for example. So when we're talking about names of cities that some of you might recognize, Takayama, for example, is a very famous fishing, or it's a very famous tourist destination, I should say, and there's great fishing all around there. Um, the The place that I mentioned earlier in the podcast where I've spent a lot of time is the Maze village in Gifu Prefecture. Maze is near the town of Hagiwara, which is also a small town, and the the most famous city nearby there is Gero, G-E-R-O. So Gero is famous for the hot springs. So Maz is a great area. There's a fishing center. There's some good accommodations there. It's a little bit more, you know, remote. Uh, You're not going to see a lot of people. There's not a train that goes into the town of Maz. But look up Mazegawa Fishing Center, and that's a great area to visit as well. So there's a lot of regions that you can visit. Of course, a lot of people are going to be attracted to like Mount Fuji area. There's some good fishing there as well. Uh, A little bit north of Tokyo, another touristy destination that people like to visit is the town of Nikko, N-I-K-K-O. And I'll put all these notes in our podcast, tenkariusa.com forward slash podcast. So I have the names of these towns and uh, a little bit more information on our podcast page. Oftentimes we, you know, we don't make plans on based on where we're going to fish. We make plans on things that we want to see. So, for example, the towns of Takayama and Nikko, those are two great destinations that I highly recommend people go check out. And when you get a chance, fish a little bit as well. Now, you know, we do get asked very frequently uh, by people who are going to Japan. It's like, hey, I'm going to go to Japan next month. Do you have any resources on you know, any guides that you can recommend and that kind of thing. So it's always a little bit hard because Japan doesn't really have a guiding culture. It's really hard to find fishing guides. Uh, We do have some contacts in like Mazegawa that we recommend people to because I've been kind of trying to encourage a couple of the locals to take on clients on occasion uh, but it's a little bit hard. There's this mix of, you know, some of the people that know the waters well might not speak English. Um, you know, so sometimes you might have to go with two people, somebody who knows the rivers well and that kind of thing. Um, but there's not a guiding infrastructure at the moment. It's something that I've been working with a couple of people there to try to develop. Um, the main resource that I like to recommend right now is... On Facebook, actually, or on the tenkariusa.com forum, uh, there's some Japanese anglers that are on Facebook. If you go to Tenkara Anglers, the, the group, or Tenkara Japan, and you might be able to connect with people there, uh, get some information. Occasionally, you might even be able to connect with somebody who is willing to take you around a little bit or show you a little bit of the waters. Unfortunately, not a whole lot of uh, fishing guiding that happens in Japan. However, 
I would say that the fishing is not that difficult. One of the benefits that Japan has, or one of the really good upsides of Japan, is access to water. Um, even though you do have to figure out a place to buy a fishing license and that kind of thing, the access to water is great. If you go to a mountain village and you see a river, and even if there's a rice farm that is next to the river, you don't really have to worry about it. You can park or you know walk over there and walk into the river. There's not a whole lot of that issue with private property when it comes to being in the water. There's some places, and usually in my experience, they're very well marked, uh, and it's really rare as well. Now, talking a little bit about fishing licenses and how things are managed in Japan. You know, in the United States, as an example, uh, every state has a fishing license. So you buy a fishing license for Colorado and you can fish anywhere you want in Colorado. That's not the case in Japan. So the way things work in Japan when it comes to fishing licenses, every river and sometimes every section of a river, it's a little tricky to figure out. Uh, but if you're going from one valley to another and you look at a map and there seems to be a clear drainage, you can assume that the drainage with the main river uh, is going to be managed by a co-op. So usually every village that has a river drainage is going to have its own cooperative and you have to buy a fishing license for that particular river shed. It's a little bit confusing. I really wish there was a national fishing license or a provincial fishing license, but there isn't. Uh, so whenever you go to a certain town and you want to fish there, you have to buy a fishing license for that town. The fishing licenses for a day, you can buy a day license uh, in most places, and they usually range between 5 and about $15 for a day. Most of the places are about $10 for a day of fishing. Not the cheapest, uh, but, you know, usually that's just how it is. In certain areas that are more they have a lot more fishing. Uh, for actually, another area that I forgot to mention is uh, Kaida Kogen. It's a little bit hard to get there. Uh, there's no trains to go nearby, but if you're driving, that's a very an example of a um, place that has a lot of fishing. It's a Nagano Prefecture, and it's a it's a famous fishing kind of destination. The other area is uh, Itoshiro, the Itoshiro River. Those are two areas that are examples of areas that people go to to fish. And when you go visit those areas, there's places with uh, these flags, uh, usually red flags that indicate where you can buy a fishing license. Sometimes you see somebody who, um, they don't have rangers, but they have like local volunteers. Oftentimes they have a, like a little uh, red armband that they wear around their arms and they're going around collecting a fee for a fishing license. Um, not the easiest system, but you can ask people, Tsuriken. Tsuri means fishing. Ken is kind of their word when you say Tsuriken is fishing license. So if you're going around, ask somebody, Tsuriken, with a question mark intonation, and somebody might be able to direct you to that. When you're going around in trains and that kind of thing, you come across all kinds of waters. Um, a lot of places are going to have trout, and you can buy a fishing license and start fishing on your own. Um, a little tricky to figure out for sure. Always best if you can connect with people ahead of time, so local people, um, but also tricky to do, of course. I apologize. I don't have a whole lot more 
to offer here. You know, it's the infrastructure for fishing tourism is not quite what I wish it was. I wish I could give you a little bit more beta, um, but I think you'll be able to figure it out pretty well if you know the words to the can. And when you get there and you see there is an abundance of water. Now let's talk a little bit about, so I talked about the seasons to go and the destinations that I like, you know, the Japanese Alps, uh, and like Nagano Prefecture, you have the Kaida Kogan area, uh, and I'll put all these notes in our podcast at tenkariyose.com forward slash podcast. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about fishing in Japan. So the fishing in Japan, it, it should not, again, I'll repeat, be the main reason for you to go visit, in my opinion. Uh, Japan has its moments, <laughs> I think, if you will. There's some places that do have superb fishing, uh, but in my experience, there are very few and far between. That's um, one of my points of contention is I, I wish that people in Japan had been better about you know, conserving their fish and promoting the sustainability of fishing in Japan. Unfortunately, for the most part, uh, Japan is still very much a catch-and-keep culture. And in my experience, that has made the fishing in Japan quite horrible. Uh, It's quite sad to say that. I wish I could say otherwise. Uh, Because Japan does have some of the most beautiful rivers uh, I know. And when I spent some time in Japan, like a couple months, uh, living in a mountain village, and I'd meet some of the local officials, for example, and it always broke my heart when they asked me, "So how was the fishing? How has been your experience with fishing here?" And it broke my heart to be honest with them, but I felt like I had a duty to to say what I what I felt, and I always had to say, you know, the Mazi, for example, is the most beautiful river I know. But it's got no fish in it. And it does, it's not that it doesn't have any fish, but it's, uh, it definitely could be much better. And it was always also very heart- heartbreaking to see, you know, the cooperatives, for example, buying fish, putting the fish in the rivers, and then people would come and just catch and just keep it and take it home. And they're treating it like a supermarket. Uh, so that's a big issue that I have with Japan. It's uh, a lot of catch and keep when you talk about catch and release, it's still very much a foreign concept. Uh, somebody has told me that fewer than 1% of the river sheds in Japan or fewer than 1% of the waters in Japan are catch and release. It's just not part of the culture right now. I hope eventually it's going to change and the fishing is going to flourish again. Uh, but, you know, the fishing is not that great. The nature, on the other hand, is absolutely beautiful, and there's, and there's going to be fish, and you're going to catch fish, of course. It's just going to be challenging in most places. There are some places that are catch and release. The, the one that I have most familiarity with is the Itoshiro River. Uh, the Itoshiro is uh, not too far from the town of Gujo in the prefecture of Gifu, uh, you go a little bit, you go about 40 minutes to an hour, mostly west uh, and a little bit north of Gujo to reach Itoshiro. And in that section, they devoted, I believe it was about 10 kilometers, uh, you know, about six miles or so to catch and release only. There's still a lot of waters around it that are catch and keep, but the section that are, that is famous in Itoshiro is a catch and release area. And there's a beautiful 
little uh, place to stay there, the Sasaki-san, uh, Minshku, for example, which is in a, a ski resort um, area during the winter, but you see there. So that's a fishing area that is famous. The other one is uh, the uh, Kaida Kogan, and it's not catch and release, but they really do a good job, and most, a lot of the visitors there do catch and release, which is very helpful. So in some, you don't go to Japan just to fish and, you know, get exhausted from catching a lot of fish. That's not really going to happen for the most part. Uh, you do want to go there for the culture, for the experience. And a few things that I'd recommend you do not miss. And probably, actually, I'll start with one of my favorite things, period, to do when I go to Japan. Or two of my favorite things, which is to visit hot springs especially when you've been fishing all day long, if you've been wet waiting or maybe it's been raining on you. And it's one of the most incredible things to have access to in Japan. There's hot springs just about everywhere. And most fishing areas in particular are going to have some hot springs nearby. So you can fish, get cold. At the end of it, go to a hot spring and relax, the onsen. It's absolutely Probably one of my main reasons to keep going back to Japan, actually, the hot springs. And those are really interesting experience, very relaxing, not to be missed. The other thing that I love to go to Japan for is the food. Oh my gosh, I can't talk enough about the food. Uh, I do have a few favorite things that I, that I like to eat there. My number one style of food is what they call yakitori. Yakitori is uh, usually skewered meats that people grill over a fire. Um, usually it's uh, chicken pieces, but there's also all kinds of weird meats, and I love them all. It's just a great style of eating. In one cooking book that I was reading, reading recently, somebody referred to it as the simplest cuisine in Japan. And maybe that's what attracted me to it from the beginning. It's a little bit like tenkara. It's a very simple style of eating. You skewer meats and you grill them and you eat it. So that with some beer, of course. You have to have some really cold beer when you're eating yakitori. And then, of course, like the accommodations in Japan, they kind of bring the best of both worlds a lot of times. Uh, you have, there's different places that you can stay when you go to mountains. Uh, the, the most common name that you hear that I highly recommend you try to visit is also known as Ryokan. So there's different classes of hotels or accommodations and lodges that you can stay in. Ryokan is usually a little bit, I wouldn't call it necessarily upscale, but a little bit more traditional. Most often you're going to have the tatami mats. The, the room might have like your own tea set, so you can have some tea in the morning. Uh, and many of those places, also many of the ryokans have their own dedicated hot springs and they make their food right there. So that's, um, if you get to choose a place to stay, highly recommend you stay for at least a couple of days in a ryokan where you're going to have the best food and oftentimes a hot spring as well. Um, it's not the cheapest place, but there's not a whole lot of cheap options to, of places to stay in Japan. Uh, but a ryokan is definitely worth the experience. The, the other kinds of places, another one is a mishku. Usually it's a little bit more modest. Uh, oftentimes they will still have food as well. Uh, my experience in mishkus has always been great. Uh, there, I have not had many bad experiences anywhere in Japan, to be honest. The, 
The service industry in Japan is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, they really try to take good care of you、um, and try to make your experience very good. Talking about accommodations, I can talk a little bit about camping as well.、Um, Japan has a lot of public land, so you can camp in a lot of different places.、Uh, you don't want to camp, of course, in somebody's property near somebody's house or anything like that.、Um, But just a few things to consider. It is a very wet country. It does rain a lot, so you do want to bring some good rain gear. When you're going to the mountain areas, there are some hazards to be aware of.、Uh, there are bears.、Uh, people are always surprised that, to know that there are bears in Japan, and there's quite a few of them.、And、depending on the area that you're going to, there's going to be more, of course. And these are.、Um, They're small, kind of black bears, but they're also very aggressive black bears.、Uh, so, just something to be aware of. I wouldn't be alarmed or anything. I've camped there a few times.、Uh, I still have not seen a bear, but just something to be very aware of. You see many times Japanese anglers who are going a little bit more into the backcountry carrying little bell bears and that kind of thing. I really don't like the noise of those,、uh, but you will see. Little bear, bell bears on people's backpacks, and now, now you know what those are for.、Um, there's also some the Japanese hornets or wasps、uh, that are bite an extremely painful bite, apparently.、Uh, I've never been bitten, and I'm hoping I don't come across them, but they're very aggressive as well, and you have to look out for them certain times of year in particular. And the last thing that you have to be aware of is、uh, snakes. You know, there are some snakes as well.、Uh, the mamushi, some of you might already know the mamushi is、uh, the name of a very poisonous snake. And it's famous in the Tenkara community because there's a famous type of fishing fly tied with a snake skin. And I'll save that for a conversation for another day. So just be aware if you're camping, you know, do a little research and just kind of be prepared. I don't quite recommend going on your own, but there's great camping opportunities in a lot of Japan. And lastly, I'll talk a little bit about getting around and just some of the logistics、um, of getting around in Japan. If you're going to Japan for your first time, you'll find it incredibly overwhelming as soon as you get there. And you, know, you see a lot of Japanese words, of course, and you have no idea what's going on. But first of all, just When you get there and you get overwhelmed, take a few seconds and take a deep breath. You'll be okay. Just know that you'll be okay. And very quickly, you'll figure out like, how to get from point A to point B. And Japan has an incredible infrastructure. It's,、uh, it's one of the easiest places to travel to and travel around.、Uh, the first time I went, I was with my wife, who's,、uh, who's familiar with Japan. I felt completely overwhelmed. For a few minutes, and all of a sudden, it's like I started looking around. It's like, yeah, it's not that hard actually. So, I'll talk a little bit about the trains and a couple other modes of transportation、uh, and a little bit about money as well. So, first of all, trains. Trains, the train network in Japan is incredible. So, you have the Shinkansen, which a lot of people know is the bullet trains, and you can get around really fast on those. And then there's some local trains. Regardless, if you're considering visiting Japan at all, I'd highly recommend you just take a look at Japan Rail Pass.、Uh, the Japan Rail Pass is only available to foreigners who do not reside in Japan, and 
usually for most travel, it's going to be an extremely economical way of traveling, but in my experience, also very, very convenient. So rather than having to buy tickets every time and try to figure out the system, you can present your pass, tell people where you want to go, and get a ticket and go. You don't have to be purchasing tickets and figuring out your budget as you go. And you can buy the Japan Rail Pass for different durations depending on how long you're going to stay. Uh, almost every single one of my trips I buy one because it's a very economical way to get around. Um, for the most part, I do recommend using the train system. It's an incredible system. Uh, you can get around almost anywhere with that. And then occasionally you might have to get into a bus, uh, but not very often. Then when I went there for a little bit of a longer period back in 2011, I did decide to rent a car. And that was a great way to travel as well. Um, don't really recommend that as your first mode, you know, your first experience in Japan because you're driving on the opposite side of the road uh, and you're trying to figure everything out as you go. But as if you do visit Japan a little bit more um, occasionally or eventually, you may want to consider renting a car. I was able to get to these really remote places uh, that would not be accessible otherwise and I was able to visit all these really cool shops and that kind of thing. I rented the car online. I believe it was something like Smile Rent-A-Car. Uh, there's a lot of different companies there that rent a cars, but um, very pain-free. Of course, it it is intimidating for sure. You know, you're driving, you get to Japan, you get to the airport, and you're immediately driving the opposite side of the road, and you're going fast and trying to figure out where to go. But if you rent a car, to the cool things that they have a really good GPS system. Uh, it's going to be a little tricky to navigate it because it's in Japanese. Uh, but if somebody can show you at least a way to get to the input in the destination, there's a cool feature in all GPSs in Japan where you input the phone number of your destination and it's going to take you there. So that's a great feature that the, the cars have over there. If you do rent a car, you have to be mindful of tow roads. So occasionally you have to pay tolls depending on where you're going. And that's a little bit of an inconvenience. There's a, you know, there's some cars. If you, it's, I highly recommend it, renting a car only if you have some good contacts over there. Uh, because there's some things that are going to make life easier and things that are a little bit stressful. When it comes to money, uh, you know, you, if you're going there and you're interested in fishing, you have to figure out money situation. Uh, Japan is a very developed country. If you're in any big city, you can use your credit card just about anywhere. But I have kind of been caught in a couple of pinches uh, in a couple of places. So a couple of tips for that I'll share with you here. Um, bring some cash with you for sure. Uh, or at least when you get to the airport or if you're landing in Tokyo or Osaka, uh, stop at one of the ATMs at the airport uh, if you haven't done it before and get some cash. But I actually really do recommend taking some cash with you uh, before you go because it can be a little tricky to find ATM machines uh, in other places. But in any case, so in the big cities, you can use credit cards almost anywhere. Smaller restaurants, uh, they're not usually equipped with a credit card machine and that kind of thing. So you do need cash uh, very often in Japan, even though it's a very developed country. 
you do need to bring some cash with you. Now, where I have run into a little bit of trouble was in the mountain villages uh, where, where, I, where I visited. And, and then I could occasionally I would run out of money, have run out of money a couple of times because I thought I could just use a credit card. Uh, and you can't in most businesses in mountains uh, of Japan. So if you do need to withdraw money, there's a lot of bank systems, but I always had a real hard time withdrawing money from most banks. Um, stop at the post office. So the post office is going to have ATM machines where your credit or your debit card should work. Uh, so that's one of the main resources. They should be easy to identify and that's the best, most reliable place that I found to withdraw money. And the second best place has been 7-Elevens. So there's going to be a lot of convenience stores. Um, and I believe now they've, they're making some changes where all the 7-Elevens should have an ATM where you can withdraw money with a uh, foreign debit card. Uh, but when I was last there, I went into one or two 7-Elevens and I could not make my card work. Uh, so post office, super reliable, and I think now most 7-Elevens are as well. Uh, your debit card should have a four-digit PIN. I think that's pretty standard, but just uh, making a note uh, so that you know. And last thing, too, that I found uh, is helpful is communication. Um, as much as I thought it would be much easier in Japan, Wi-Fi is not as easily accessible to most foreigners as uh, we would think. Um, so usually what I do, depending on how long I'm going and that kind of thing, how much use, uh, how much data I plan on using, the simplest way my experience has been to notify my U.S. Uh, cell phone provider that I'm going to go there and trying to get a batch of uh, data that I can use when I'm in Japan. And I try to be very mindful not to use it too much, but it comes really handy to have my smartphone be able to access data and use my GPS or other features. Uh, so I usually pre-purchase some data here. But another option is when you get to the airport, you can very often rent a cell phone with a certain amount of data. So that's usually going to come in handy if you're trying to find directions to go somewhere, uh, if you want to really quickly look at your you know, map on your iPhone, for example, or if you want to update your friends with your Facebook update of the latest fish that you caught. The cool thing about data in Japan and cell phone service is that you pretty much have reception anywhere. And we're talking about deep in mountain streams in Japan. Very often you can get reception, um, you know, in the most remote places. Uh, it's hard to find a place where you cannot get access to some kind of cell phone connectivity. Uh, so it comes in very handy when you catch that amago on your first visit, take a picture of it and use some of your data to share the picture with us. Now that we've talked about the fishing in Japan, the traveling, why don't we talk a little bit about the pronunciation of certain Tenkara words so that you can get around a little bit more, be understood a little bit more easily when you're visiting Japan. Now I've got my wife Margaret here with me in the studio and uh, she's going to help us uh, work through some of those words. 
Margaret is a uh, fluent Japanese speaker. Uh, she speaks Japanese, she, even though she's born and raised in the United States, she speaks Japanese with her parents at home and she's grew up, she grew up speaking Japanese. So we're going to be sharing with you how to say a few things in Japanese as well as how to pronounce certain key words in Japanese that you might, might have read about on our blog and so forth. So Margaret, thanks for joining me here today. Uh, can you tell uh, people, uh, let's, first of all, let's help people travel in Japan. So can you say, do you speak English in Japanese? Can you say that a little bit more slowly? Cool, thank you. So that's how you can ask people if they speak English when you're traveling. Now, what about, let's ask people... Where do I buy a fishing license? If you can say that in a simple way. So actually, how do you say fishing license in Japanese? Tsuriken. So tsuri, if I understand, is fishing, right? Yes. Okay, so tsuriken is the fishing license. So usually when I'm traveling in Japan, I try to look for these little flags that tell me where the fishing licenses are. Um, and I'll try to post a picture on our podcast webpage later on so you can find what it looks like. But you can just say Tsuriken, you know, like you know, it's an intonation, like a question mark intonation, and somebody might be able to point to you in a fishing area anyways uh, to where to get a fishing license. Now, let's help people uh, get the pronunciation of certain Japanese words. So how would you say Tenkara? Tenkara. Now, how would you say, let's talk about the names of the fish, which are also coincidentally the names of our fishing rods that we offer at Tenkariyose. How would you say Amago? Amago. What about the very popular Iwana rod and uh, also the char called the Iwana? How would you pronounce that? Iwana. Now, the, the other fish that we have is the Yamame. How would you say that? Yamame. And then one word that a lot of people have adopted uh, is kebari, which is the word that we use for artificial flies, you know, where ke means feather, right? Yes. And bari is like the word for hook once it's next to feather. Mm-hmm. Now, kebari is like a lot of people have adopted that word anytime they're referring specifically to tenkara flies. How would you say kebari in Japanese? Kebari. Perfect. So I think that kind of gives you a good idea of the main words that people have read here and there. Um, oh, and what about sato? So sato is actually not exactly a Japanese word. Um, sato is the name of one of our rods, but it's also the name of a Japanese or a, a British diplomat who lived in Japan for a long time. How would you say that if you were to say that in Japanese? Sato. Sato. Perfect. And, oh, we have the ito, too. How could I forget the ito rod? How would you say that one? Ito. Perfect. So hopefully that will kind of help people pronounce the words correctly next time they go to Japan and uh, so that we make sure that I'm not misleading our listeners here. So that's my tidbit about fishing and traveling in Japan on today's Tenkara Cast. Hopefully that information is going to help anybody who's looking at traveling to Japan at some point uh, to find their way around a little bit more. Again, I'm going to post links and more information on our uh, the podcast page for this podcast. Uh, so visit tenkariusa.com forward slash podcast and I'll have a little bit more information in there. 
If you have any questions at all, do connect with us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Tenkara USA. You'll find us there, like our page, and ask us any questions that you might have or share any comments so that other viewers and listeners can also learn a little bit about your experiences fishing in Japan. So until next time on the Tenkara Cast. Thank you very much for listening to the Tenkara Cast. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Nick Ogawa, also known as Takenobu. Check out his music at takenobumusic.com. We'll be posting links to any references we made in this podcast, such as Takenobu's music, on our website, www.tenkarausa.com forward slash podcast. And until next time on the Tenkara Cast.